The Tom Woods Show, episode 2211. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey folks, if you've decided it's best not to have your kids educated by people who have declared war on you, then consider the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum. Instructors like me will give your kids an unfair advantage and an education you and I could only have dreamed of. But make sure you join through my link because only there do you get my $160 worth of free bonuses. My link is ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here by popular demand. I'm talking today to Corey DeAngelis, whom you have no doubt seen or heard around talking about the subject of school choice. The guy is everywhere. And I don't mean he's just on a lot of podcasts. I mean, also, he's physically everywhere. He's in one city, he's in another city. He's flying somewhere, he's in a hotel. He's all over the place. I follow him a little bit on social media, so I get a a glimpse into the guy's life. It's absolutely unbelievable. He's with the American Federation for Children, which we were noting seems to be an interesting parallel to the American Federation of Teachers, that maybe children ought to have advocates. How about that? So, Corey, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. All right, I want to talk about school choice and what's been going on in the past couple of years because obviously I think COVID kind of changed the game a bit and gave this particular topic, put it in the limelight a lot more than it had been. So I I want to get into that. But then I do want to play devil's advocate a bit because I recently, I was listening to Jacob Hornberger on Bob Murphy's show. And as you know, he's not a fan of any of this. And he thinks that this is not, the path a libertarian should take. And I want to give you a chance to answer that. I'm sure you've, you know, obviously you think about this all the time, and I want you to have an opportunity to get on the record what your view on all this is. But let's start with 2020. Obviously, homeschooling, which is a kind of school choice, got a, if I may use this infelicitous term, shot in the arm over the past two and a half years. But also, I think because of the experiences people had with online schooling and some of the restrictions in the schools, a lot of people were looking for alternatives. So how would you quantify or describe how COVID changed the picture on all this? Yeah, I think you're exactly right there. And the thing is that the teachers unions really overplayed their hand and awakened a sleeping giant, parents who want more of a say in their kids' education. The teachers unions, they've outdone themselves and it's been absolutely glorious for them to just keep stepping in it over and over again. And so the teachers unions really were the best school choice advocates, the best proponents of educational freedom and homeschooling that we could have ever imagined by showing their true colors, inserting politics into the classroom and pushing to keep the schools closed. I mean, you had Randy Weingarten's union, the American Federation of Teachers, lobbying the CDC to make it more difficult to reopen schools in person They understood they could hold children's education hostage to secure multiple multi-billion dollar ransom payments from the federal government. And I've said it many times before, underperforming private schools shut down, underperforming government schools get more money. And we saw that with COVID. They were able to say, we aren't open because we just need more money. And that's the backward set of incentives that are baked into the government school system. And the only way to fix that is to fund students directly and allow families to choose alternate providers of education. That would provide competition. And I don't think we would have had school closures as long as we had over the past couple of years if there was bottom-up accountability, allowing families to vote with their feet. And I say that they overplayed their hand because, the unions that is, because families got to see what was going on in the classroom. This Remote learning that a lot of people refer to that I I really don't like to use that term at all because it was more like remotely learning. There wasn't a lot of learning going on with the school closures. Families got to see that the system didn't give a crap about their kids, but they more importantly got to see what was going on in the classroom. And that was the silver lining of the school closures was that parents who thought that their kids were in great public schools, whether they were A rated by the state or maybe their kids had good standardized test scores in math and reading. Those same parents are now mobilized, some of them, because they saw another dimension of school quality, which is actually, I would argue, more important than what is captured on a standardized test score, which is that school's values or curriculum are aligned with the family's values. So parents 
started to wake up. They started to see that they're sending their kids to Caesar and that they shouldn't be surprised anymore when their kids come back as Romans, as Vodibachum once famously said. So they don't want to send their kids to institutions for 13 years where they feel like they're being brainwashed. So some of this had to do with critical race theory. Other families are upset about gender ideology in the classroom. Other families are upset about teachers inserting their politics into the classroom. And all these things came together and got families to wake up, show up at the school board meetings, but also to show up at the ballot box too. Coming out against parental rights and education at this moment is becoming a form of political suicide. We saw what happened with Terry McAuliffe in Virginia after he said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Glenn Youngkin, the Republican opponent, won by two points overall in a state that went 10 points to Biden just the year before on the issue of education, according to Washington Post exit polling. And we saw organizations like the National School Boards Association just completely fall apart after a letter to the Department of Justice implying that some parents should be investigated for domestic terrorism for showing up at school board meetings and voicing their disagreement about the curriculum that families found in their schools. Well, ever since then, over the past six months, 26 decided to end their membership or stop their funding of the National School Boards Association. So we might as well call that organization, I don't know, the Regional School Boards Association at this point. It just goes to show you that parents have become a new special interest group, and they're not going away anytime soon. For far too long, it was just the teachers unions and the superintendents unions and the other employees unions. But now the kids have a union, and it happens to be their own parents. And I don't think these parents are going to just sit down and shut up no matter how many times members of the establishment try to label them as domestic terrorists. That's only going to embolden them to push back even harder. And so I'm optimistic that the changes are going to continue going forward. And I didn't even mention in 2021, 19 states enacted or expanded programs to fund students as opposed to systems, what most people call school choice. And just a couple of months ago, Arizona just won up to all of those states and went all in on school choice, allowing every single family, regardless of income, regardless of background, to be able to take their children's state-funded education dollars to the education providers of their choosing. That could be at the government school, if you want. If you like your public school, you can keep your public school, unlike with the whole doctor thing from a few years back. But if not, you can take that funding to an education savings account, which can be directed by the parents, and you could use it to pay for any approved education expenses. That could be private school tuition and fees. That could be for homeschooling curriculum, private tutoring, special needs therapies, You just can't go and use it for your favorite restaurant or a big screen TV, for example. But this is the gold standard of school choice policy. Arizona was the first state to do it, and they've cemented themselves as the number one state for educational freedom. And I'm hoping other states will engage in friendly competition on this to continue moving the ball forward to allow families to have a choice. I have to say that Arizona thing really surprised me. I mean, now that it's happened, you know, it's become, as you say, like the gold standard for this movement. But, you know, it was almost like Roe versus Wade being overturned. (laughs) There's been one way of doing things that's been part of the landscape for so long, it just becomes unthinkable that it could change. And then just like that, it changed. And so it's an example of, I mean, you I don't know how many years you've been involved in this movement, but, you know, year after year, you make marginal improvements here and there, but my gosh, you feel like you're up against this insurmountable obstacle. And then just like that, a major state, a major state all of a sudden goes your way. That's an incredible outcome. Yeah. I mean, Milton Friedman said it best that we need to make it politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right things. And I think that's what's changed over the past couple of years is we have this new special interest group, the parents sticking up for their kids, and they're holding politicians accountable. Republicans in particular, are losing their primaries for coming out against school choice. It's becoming a GOP's litmus test issue. I mean, look at Tennessee, for example. Their House Republican primaries just happened, and they had about 10 Republicans in the Tennessee House that were endorsed or funded by the Tennessee Teachers Union, and nine out of the 10 lost their primaries. So the Teachers Union endorsement, for Republicans at least, is becoming the political kiss of death. And 
as libertarians, I know we like to just make the most logical argument for our policy, but the reality is that politicians respond to pressure and power, and you need to be able to mobilize people on the ground to make politicians feel that pressure. And what we're seeing, and I think what we saw unfold over the past couple of years is that families have made education a voting issue. We surely saw it in the Virginia election. And I think that the more that Republicans lean into being the parents party or supporting school choice policies and other policies that empower parents to have more of a say in their kids' education, the more that Republicans lean into parental rights, the more it's going to be politically disastrous for Democrats to come out against it. And so I think a true path to nonpartisanship for school choice is through hyperpartisanship. And I think we're seeing this unfold in Pennsylvania. I just wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal called A Democrat Defects on School Choice. It has to do with their gubernatorial candidate for the Democrats, Josh Shapiro. He's historically been staunchly anti-school choice. He's been endorsed by the teachers union and He quietly changed his education platform to include education savings accounts, kind of like what they passed in Arizona, not as full-throated, but a similar policy limited to kids in failing schools. But it still represents a huge shift in the policy for Josh Shapiro. And my theory there is that he doesn't want a Terry McAuliffe moment to happen for him. And he wants to be able to preempt his opponent, Doug Mastriano, the Republican, from being able to accuse him of school choice hypocrisy, which I'm sure, Tom, you've seen me lay out all over Twitter by pointing out that school choice opponents frequently send their own kids to private school or they attended private school themselves or both, like the case with Josh Shapiro. He attended private schools exclusively and sent all of his kids to private schools and currently does send his kids to private schools. By coming out in favor of school choice, that's a smart political move for him because he can deflect any future accusations of hypocrisy from his opponent. It's politically popular in the polls, so it's a great move for him to do that as well. And it prevents him from having a Terry McAuliffe moment like we saw last year, essentially costing the Democrat the election in Virginia. So this was all around just, it seems like a smart political calculation to make this change. It's also notable that he did so less than two months before the November election. And so I look, it's been a GOP thing for a while, but I think it should be a nonpartisan thing. The poll suggests that with voters, at least it's a nonpartisan thing. But because the Democrats have been overly reliant on the teachers unions and their campaign contributions. It's unfortunately been a highly partisan thing among elected officials, but that might change because now, because parents have stepped up to the plate, the politicians from all parties will need to decide whose side that they should take. And they would be wise to listen to parents because parents care about their kids more than anybody else. So they're going to be a vested interest that fights harder than anybody else. And by the way, it's just the right thing to do. You know, early on, you mentioned Randy Weingarten. And one of the interesting things over the past, I don't know, year at least, has been to observe them trying to create their own reality when it comes to describing what happened after early 2020. Randy Weingarten tries to portray herself as somebody who desperately tried to keep schools open. And then we heard the (laughs) the White House press secretary saying that, thankfully, we were able to keep schools open over Republican opposition. I mean, this is this is such gaslighting that I, I almost think maybe they really are, I mean, well, not Weingarten, but I don't know, maybe they are that dumb that they think that's what happened? Because how, yeah, how think, would you try to get away with a lie like that? I mean, they think parents are stupid and you know what? They've been so drunk on power for so long. They've been able to get away with this for a long time, but now we have social media, we have the receipts And parents aren't going to forget what happened. They saw it right before their eyes. We have so many headlines of what Randy Weingarten's union did to keep the schools closed. And oh, by the way, if you were fighting so hard to open the schools all along, then why did it take you so long to do it? Even if we buy your argument that you were fighting to reopen the schools, well, you're particularly incompetent at doing so because all the private schools basically were able to figure it out from the get-go 
all the private businesses were fighting to reopen, but the government school teachers unions were fighting for the opposite. Why? Because one of those sectors, the only difference is one of those sectors receives children's education dollars, regardless of whether they even open their doors for business, but it was even worse. They knew that they could profit or at least financially benefit from keeping schools closed. Like I said earlier, they were able to say, well, look, we need more money and that's the only way we're going to reopen. It's what they said all along for decades. We're failing because we need more money. Our test scores are low because we need more money. And what has happened since 1970, we've increased per pupil education expenditures nationwide by about 152% after adjusting for inflation and outcomes haven't gotten any better. And it hasn't even really gone to the classroom. It hasn't gone to the teachers. Teacher salaries have only increased over the same period by about 8% after adjusting for inflation. Where's all the money going? It's going towards administrative bloat and staffing surges, putting more people into the buildings. And unfortunately, the sad reality is the government school system has become more of a jobs program for adults than an education initiative for kids. And look, Randy Weingarten's affiliated unions, like the Chicago Teachers Union, which is an affiliate of the a local affiliate of the American Federation of Teachers, they were tweeting out. They said, quote, the push to reopen schools is rooted in racism, sexism, and misogyny, end quote. They ended up deleting that tweet after I replied to them with a CNN headline talking about a study which indicated that school closures disproportionately hurt low-income kids and Black and Hispanic kids. So if anything, their claim was the opposite of reality. They ended up deleting that tweet. They really stepped in it there. I mean, they did whatever they could to try to keep the schools closed. In Chicago, they were even going on strike, if you remember this. In 2022, two weeks to slow the spread turned into two years to flatten a generation of children. And they didn't give a crap about what the kids needed. You had the Los Angeles Teachers Union. They were including in their report on safely reopening schools they wanted to have a wealth tax, Medicare for all, police-free schools. They wanted a ban on their competition, charter schools. They just threw everything in there, which really goes to show you that this was always more about politics and power than safety and the needs of kids. So no one's buying Randy Weingarten's attempt to rewrite history when it comes to school closures. They lobbied the CDC. We had the public records FOIA request showing that they they lobbied the CDC to keep schools closed even longer. They were even threatening safety strikes, Randy Weingarten was, at the beginning of all of this, so-called safety strikes, that if they didn't get what they wanted, they were going to do it, basically a nationwide teacher strike. You had, on at least two occasions, at least 12 major city teachers unions banding together with the Democratic Socialist of America on a national day of resistance at least twice to quote unquote demand safe schools. And in their demands, they were calling again for rent cancellation, police free schools again, billions of dollars in federal bailouts, everything that you could imagine under the sun, they included that had nothing to do with reopening the schools in a safe manner. If they had the money to do it, if they wanted to do it, they could have done it. And that was evidenced by all of the private schools, grocery stores, daycares. They were all able to figure it out. I mean, look at this. There was a Catholic school in Sacramento County, California. There was a a ridiculous closure rule that was handed down by the health county officials that said that if you were a school, you were not safe enough to open. But if you were a daycare center, it was all fine and dandy because, you know, COVID's really smart and all, and it knows that if you're learning something, then it's going to get you. But if you weren't learning anything and you're just in daycare, then you were totally safe from COVID according to that closure rule. Well, there, there was a Catholic school in that area that understood that that was a bunch of BS. And they understood also that if they didn't open their doors, they would probably have to close for good because families would take their money elsewhere. And They rebranded themselves as a daycare. They retrained all of their teachers as daycare employees and tried to get around that ridiculous regulation by rebranding themselves, not as a school, but as a daycare. And that just goes to show you the incentives 
and the difference in incentives that exist between the two sectors, public and private. They were fighting to open, doing whatever they could in the private sector, but the government school teachers unions continued to fight to hold children's education hostage to steal even more money from the taxpayers. You know, there is so much to talk about on this. I want to know, obviously we know what, what's happened in Arizona. Are there other states you have your eye on that you think are, if not low-hanging fruit, more likely to bear results in this area than others? Yeah, well, in 2021, the biggest victory before Arizona was West Virginia. 93% of families about are eligible for their program, which is similar, an education savings account program that allows families to take the money to the public school, a charter school, private school, or any other approved education expense, like a, like tutoring or home-based education expenses, such as curriculum. And the only requirement there is that you must switch from a public school in order to save taxpayer money. Because if the reason that they put that in there at first was because if you're funding families who are already paying private school tuition and fees out of pocket, and if you start funding homeschoolers too, that's going to create a legislative fiscal note, which politicians are always concerned about. So in order to prevent that from happening, they built in a requirement to switch out of the public schools to guarantee a financial benefit of the school choice program. But they have that being sunset out in a few years, I believe in three more years. So West Virginia is a big victory, 93% eligibility that will bust off to 100% in a couple of years, making it pretty similar to the Arizona victory. But I will say that one is stuck in the courts right now. A West Virginia circuit judge ruled with the teachers union. Might I add that the same circuit judge that blocked the program currently had been previously funded and endorsed by the teachers union. The lawsuit was filed by a few plaintiffs. One of the main plaintiffs, I think one of three, was a local county level teachers union president. The law center that filed the lawsuit in West Virginia was funded by the teachers union and and I believe still is funded by the teachers union. And this activist judge blocked the program, which goes to show you that appointing judges is really important too. We expect to win that case at the state Supreme Court level when it gets there. The state attorney general is hopeful that they will have a good decision on that case as well. And we also have tons of Supreme Court precedent in favor of school choice. And that's another part of the headwinds over the past couple of years is we've had two U.S. Supreme Court cases rule in favor of religious liberties and school choice programs. Basically, the first one was in 2020, the Espinoza v. Montana decision, which basically said that if you're going to have a school choice program, you don't have to have one. We're not telling states they have to have one, but if you have one, you can't discriminate against religious families and schools by saying that you have to take the funding to a non-religious private school. So you can't discriminate on the basis of religion. And then in 2022, we just had the Carson v. Macon case out of Maine, which similarly ruled that if you're going to have a school choice program, you can't discriminate against religious families and schools. And they also reiterated in the opinion of the court, something that was ruled on in 2002 in the Zelman v. Simmons-Harris case that school choice is not a violation of the Establishment Clause. There's no so-called separation of church and state issue for the same reason that Pell Grants for, for college or the GI Bill for college did not have a separation of church and state issue. The reason for that being is the primary beneficiaries of those programs are the students themselves And then they can have a choice in the matter to take that funding to religious or non-religious institutions, public or private, religious or non-religious institutions. So there's not a violation of the Establishment Clause issue with school choice, as was ruled in 2002. Zelman v. Simmons-Harris had to do with an Ohio voucher program. And then they reiterated that was the case with the Carson v. Macon case of just this year in 2022. And then other states, look, I'm looking towards red states going forward. The reality is school choice is a Republican Party platform issue. In Arizona, Republicans were able to get it done with the slimmest of majorities. 
I'm not sure if all the listeners know, but in Arizona, it's a purplish state, but it's controlled by the Republicans in each chamber by only one seat. Republicans have a one-seat majority in the House, the Senate, and the governor is a Republican as well. And it required every single one of them to show up and vote in favor of their party platform issue and in favor of expanding parental rights by allowing all families to have school choice in order to get it done. So if Arizona can get it done, every single other red state should be able to get it done as well. I'm looking towards Texas. Greg Abbott is leading on the issue in Texas like he has never done before. Just in January of this year, he was at a campaign event where he said that he believed that this coming session, Texas would have the swiftest, most powerful push for school choice in Texas history. And he also called for at a, an event in May of this year, earlier this summer, that he supported allowing all families to be able to take their kids' education dollars to a the public, private, or charter school of their choosing. So he said all families, which makes me believe it's a, a universal program, which would be expansive like Arizona's, not just targeted based on income or, or these other eligibility criteria. And he also said public, private, and charter, which gives me hope as well, because some people will say they support school choice and then only they'll only mean charter schools or they'll only mean limited forms of choice that he included private schools in his statement as well with the money following the student gives me hope that Texas can get some private school choice. They have zero private school choice programs in Texas at all. And the Republicans have held all three. They've had a trifecta of control for the past two decades, but haven't been able to get a private school choice program done. I will say in Texas in 2017, the Senate actually did pass an education savings account bill with almost all Republicans in favor. I think it was a 19 to 12 vote. But then the House quietly killed the bill and there wasn't a lot of commotion about it in 2017. But things have changed since 2017. The support for school choice has grown significantly. In Texas, for example, they put school choice on the Republican primary ballots in 2018 and in 2022. In 2018, the support was about 79% on that ballot, and then it jumped to about 88% in the most recent March 2022 ballot, representing a nine percentage point jump in support for school choice among Republican Party primary voters. And then overall nationwide, the latest Real Clear Opinion Research polling we've seen has demonstrated uh, about an eight percentage point jump in support for school choice nationwide since April of 2020, with now 72% of Americans overall supporting school choice, including supermajority support among Democrats, Republicans, and independents. But where I'm really looking next year, this coming session, is Iowa. I've been telling everybody all eyes on Iowa when it comes to school choice. They tried to pass an ESA school choice bill this past year. And it was the governor's ESA bill, Governor Kim Reynolds. She's a staunch supporter of school choice policy, and she pushed for an education savings account. And the Senate was able to pass it with all Republicans in favor except for one, easily passed the bill. But then in the House, although Republicans controlled 60 of the 100 seats, I should say so-called Republicans or, or members with a, an R next to their name, they were not able to get it done. Even after Kim Reynolds held the legislature past its 100-day mark, which is something that usually doesn't happen in Iowa. She tried to make a deal and, and get some type of school choice program passed. They just would not do it in the House. So she came out and said, you know what, we're going to clean up House in Iowa. And she went out and endorsed nine candidates in the primaries in Iowa. And most of their opponents differed basically only on school choice policy. That was the main differentiator in most of those races. And Reynolds, Kim Reynolds endorsed candidates. Eight of the nine won their races. And so it looks like we have the number of votes required to get school choice in Iowa next year. And so I'm seeing a lot of friendly competition with red states to try to get this done. I think DeSantis is based in a lot of ways. And I think the obvious next step is for him to say, you know what? We've been leading in school choice for a long time. Arizona just one-upped us pretty clearly. 
we should come back and, and do the same thing and expand school choice to every single family. So I expect something to come from Florida as well next year. And I can go through a list of tons of other states, but- Oh, I'm the, sure. The short of it is red states. I mean, that's where it's more likely to happen at this point. I think the blue states will have to come along in the long run, but it's only if the Republicans lean into this as a political winner to make it politically disastrous for Democrats to come out against it. And then at the end of the day, politicians from all parties will have to listen to parents. With regard to DeSantis, I don't see how the teachers unions could dislike him any more than they do already. So he's got nothing to lose politically with regard to that. Hey, everybody, a quick word on behalf of Blinkist, our sponsor. You and I have an enormous amount of stuff to learn and a very short amount of time in which to learn it all. And the Blinkist app can help us do that. You can get the key takeaways from thousands and thousands of nonfiction books and podcasts across a huge variety of categories in just 15 minutes. You'll be educated and entertained at the same time. You'll never be without something to say. You'll have an opportunity to get the gist of a wide variety of perspectives. It'll seem like you've read the Library of Alexandria, in effect, but you and I will know the truth. You will find all kinds of modern bestsellers available on Blinkist, but you'll also find old classics of the sort that you and I would enjoy reading, like Murray Rothbard's For a New Liberty, or The Conscience of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater, or Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman. And thanks to their brand new feature, Blinkist Connect, you can share titles that you found particularly stimulating with your best friend, along with your own comments. So it's like having two accounts for the price of one. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com woods to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com woods to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com woods. And for a limited time, you can even use Blinkist Connect to share your premium account. So it's like getting two premium subscriptions for the price of one. Again, Blinkist.com slash Woods. All right, now I want to raise two objections that are the most common to school choice as we all understand it that come from libertarians. So let's do them one at a time. The first one is a practical objection, which is if such a scheme is established in my state, I would not be able to just put a sign in front of my house and say, this is the Tom Woods School. And everybody who comes over, we just eat potato chips and play video games all day. So there would have to be some (laughs) standard established. And the problem is the same people who are establishing terrible schools are going to be in charge of figuring out what those standards are. So the concern is it's the he who pays the piper calls the tune thing. Maybe a really good school, the kind you would want to send your kids to, will find it difficult to get accredited or established or not in trouble with the state because it It doesn't agree with the reigning ideology of the state in this day and age. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so first of all, you need to have some type of standard just to make sure it's a bare minimum of providing an education. So as I mentioned earlier, you can't just go and spend the money on your favorite restaurant, for example. I know you've been posting a lot of great restaurants on Facebook, Tom. (laughs) Yes. But just to make sure you're not using the money, and I think that's a pretty reasonable bare minimum of some type of taxpayer accountability to not spend it on big screen TVs and fancy restaurants. But at the same time, as a libertarian, I don't want the government saying that you have to have this type of curriculum or that type of curriculum. It should be very hands-off, very minimal standards. And if you look at the Arizona bill, that's what they have. The statute explicitly states that the government can't control the creed or mission or curriculum of the school. And they also can't require any reporting of standardized testing requirements, whether that's a state test or a nationally norm reference test. So this is about as light touch as you can get when it comes to the regulations. So not all school choice programs are created equal from a libertarian perspective, and we should all be vigilant in reading the bills to make sure they don't have onerous regulations that could control the mission of the school. So if, if we have a model, again, Arizona is the gold standard, and they even explicitly say that there will be no state control of, of the school. And then as far as like the broader point that I think is brought up here is that people will say, you know, this is, this is not a libertarian position because with government money comes government strings. And my 
simple response to that is that we can't make perfect the enemy of the good. We shouldn't be missing the forest for the trees because whether we like it or not, in the current situation, we don't have utopia. We have nine out of 10 kids stuck in government-run schools today that are totally controlled and operated by the government. And out of the 60 or 70 existing school choice programs in the nation and throughout U.S. history, there's never been a school choice program that forces any family to take the money or not. If you were forced to take the money and the regulations, I'd be against it. But there is no program that, from what I can tell, has, has ever existed that has forced families to take the funding. So it's a cost-benefit decision that each individual family should be able to make for themselves. But at the same time, you shouldn't be able to tell another family that they can't make that cost-benefit decision for themselves. And another good part about the Arizona law is that they explicitly put into the bill that if you accept the money, you are an ESA student, an education savings account student, even if it looks like what you're doing is homeschooling. If you don't accept the money, you are a pure homeschooler. And that's just to make clear in the law that these are two separate categories of families so that it reduces the likelihood of any regulatory spillover between those two groups. And I think some homeschooling groups have been happy with that part of the bill to provide more separation to make it clear that you're actually not a homeschooler, even if it looks like you're homeschooling, if you accept the funding under state law with the new school choice expansion in Arizona. And the other part of this is that, look, the government can regulate private and home education already. This is not a school choice issue. This is an issue of electing the politicians who are going to trample on your rights or not. I mean, look at Oregon in 1922. They outlawed private education in Oregon. Thankfully, three years later, the U.S. Supreme Court in Pierce versus Society of Sisters ruled that the child is not the mere creature of the state and thankfully overturned that authoritarian law in Oregon from 1922. But there's another doomsday scenario that is, I would say, more likely than what is being argued by some libertarians who say that school choice could lead to government control of private education. And, and that scenario is that we have nine out of 10 kids going to government schools today. They're being indoctrinated to grow up to vote like little socialists later on in life. And when they go through that process, they're more likely to vote to regulate private and home education in the future. And we should be more concerned about that than giving families the choice to accept the money or not today. And the benefit of doing that and having school choice and giving families that option is that you build a broader coalition to fight back against those future calls for regulation. You get more people experiencing private education, you'll have a bigger special interest, if you will, to fight back against tyrants' calls to regulate private and home education. And then the other benefit is if more people are using private and home education in the short run, then the idea will become more mainstream. If the concept is more mainstream, the rest of society should be less likely to call to regulate it. So both of those things work in our favor, and, and those are arguments as to why we should support school choice and allowing families to have the choice to take the money or not. Look, I'm with you. I'm an anarcho-capitalist. I don't want any government involvement in anything particularly in education, but if we're going to spend the money and if we're in a scenario where we already are spending the money, then we got to make decisions about incremental reforms that are going to work in our favor to reduce government control of our lives. And, and a policy reform that's working right now that we're winning on is school choice. And my takeaway is that we should take the W or else we're going to be stuck with the L. And what's funny to me is we've mentioned Randy Weingarten a couple of times already, is that she's repeated the same argument on Twitter. Oh, you know, oh, school choice is going to control private education. Do you think Randy Weingarten is some anarcho-capitalist libertarian who just hates government involvement in private education? No, absolutely not. Randy Weingarten loves big government. And she's only repeating this argument because she knows that if it gets more traction, and is successful in blocking school choice, well, then she's going to keep her gravy train going, and kids are going to continue to be stuck 
in government-run institutions that are controlled by her union. So when you're on the side of Randy Weingarten in this debate in the teachers' union, you're probably on the wrong side, and you're probably overthinking things. And by the way, every single policy reform, and so does the status quo, has a set of costs and benefits associated with it. As Thomas Sowell once said, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. And there are trade-offs with every policy solution that's proposed, and the status quo has trade-offs as well. And what people are doing when they're fear-mongering about school choice policies is they're focusing on potential future costs of the school choice policy while ignoring all of the huge guaranteed costs that already exist today of cementing the teachers' union monopoly. We got to make these types of decisions, and I think parents are the best in position to make these decisions for their own kids. And because they're not forced to take the money and families can make the cost-benefit decision to accept the funding or not, I think we should allow them to have that choice. Otherwise, what we're basically doing is saying, here's your education dollars, and you are currently forced to take them, about $15,000, $16,000 per student per year in the U.S., to the residentially assigned government-run school. Whether you use or not, you got to take that money there. And what school choice does is say, okay, you can still continue to take it there if you want, but if not, you can take that funding to a private provider, or you can pay out of pocket still for a private provider and still keep sending your kids' education dollars to the government-run institution, whether they go there or not. That is the choice set that we face. And I think the better scenario is like what passed in Arizona, letting all families have that choice. And look, the cost-benefit decision isn't even that difficult because there isn't a lot of government overreach or onerous regulations in their bill. And if there was, and if some confrontational legislator in the future wants to introduce some type of amendment to the bill or something that includes state testing, well, then we should fight like hell against that amendment when it comes. And that's exactly what we should do if tomorrow a legislator tried to introduce a bill to outlaw homeschooling. Well, we should all fight like hell against that. This is totally separate from the school choice debate. All right, one last thing before I let you go. I didn't know until, to be honest with you, last week that for a very long time, Milwaukee has had some kind of school choice program, and I feel confident that you're familiar with it. I think one thing that will help some people feel better about this policy would be seeing results, would be seeing what actually comes of it. So given that Milwaukee has had it, although I'd like it if you could describe, because I don't know the details, what the program consists of, I think it's been around long enough that you could point to what the actual results have been and are the results any good? Yeah, I don't know if you knew this already, but my first kind of thrust into the national spotlight was because of my first study when I was doing my PhD at the University of Arkansas. And I got my hands on the state-mandated evaluation data for the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, which has been around since 1990 for over three decades now. And I had the student-level data, and I was able to connect that data from the state-mandated evaluation to adult criminal records when the students were about 30 years of age. And I found with my co-author, Professor Patrick Wolf from the University of Arkansas, that the students using the program were statistically and substantially less likely to commit crimes by the time that they were about 30 years of age relative to their peers that were statistically matched based on background characteristics in the public school system. So that's a huge benefit that goes way beyond test scores. But also, there have been about five studies or six studies, let's say at least five, in Milwaukee looking at the competitive effects of that school choice program, finding in all five of those studies or six, I don't remember the specific number, that there were statistically significant positive effects of school choice competition on the outcomes of the students in the public schools too. So school choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats. The public schools up their game in response to competition like you'd see in any other market. And there was another evaluation, I believe in 2013, by Joshua Cowan and his research team, peer-reviewed study finding that the program increased the likelihood of graduation by about three to four percentage points. It's not a huge increase, but look, it's a positive effect. It was statistically significant and done at a fraction of the cost of what they spend in the government schools. 
I mean, look at the DC voucher program. I live here in DC and their government schools spend over $30,000 per student, according to the latest data from the Census Bureau each year. And the voucher students only receive about a third of that. They only get about ten dollars to $12,000 per year. And that saves taxpayer money, obviously. But the latest federal evaluation using random assignment methodology, the gold standard of social science research, found, and this was a federal evaluation in 2019, found no difference in standardized test scores after a few years, but they found pretty large benefits in terms of reducing absenteeism, increasing reports of safety, and reports of satisfaction. And it was done at a third of the cost. So a lot of the media just reported the test results and said, look, they didn't get any better test scores. This must be a failure of the program. I would call that a win if you're spending a third of the money, you're getting the same test score outcomes, but then there are other benefits that aren't measured by test scores like safety and interest in the school and families just being happy with what they're getting. Families make these decisions for a lot of different reasons. And that's, again, what we've seen over the past couple of years is that one of the overlooked important metrics to families when it comes to schools is whether that school's curriculum is aligned with their values. That might not show up on a math or reading standardized test score, but it shows up in the minds of the families. And the reality is schooling is just an extension of parenting. And part of parenting is educating your kids in math and reading, but it's also raising your kid to be a good person, one that's aligned with your values and grows up to be a productive member of society and test scores aren't going to be able to capture all the things that go into the decision-making process of families. But that said, the preponderance of the evidence is positive even when it comes to test scores and school choice. It just happens to be much more positive when you look at things like safety, satisfaction, crime reduction. There's even a study in New York City, Harlem Children's Zone. They used the gold standard experiment as well, random assignment lotteries in order to get into the charter school sets up a good experimental design. And kids who won the lottery to go to a charter school in Harlem's Children's Zone, peer-reviewed evaluation as well by Harvard and Princeton researchers, I believe it was published in 2015. And they found that winning a lottery to attend one of these schools decreased incarceration for male students by 100%. If you won the lottery, you did not end up incarcerated in the study period. And then it decreased the likelihood of teenage pregnancy for female students by 59%. And we can be pretty confident that's the effect of winning the lottery to go to the school, not the effect of background family characteristics or background characteristics of the children because of the random assignment methodology. So the evidence is overwhelmingly positive, but I like to make the case for school choice just based on the logic of the argument. And that's why I've kind of turned it into a conversation about funding students, not systems. Look, if you support funding students directly for higher education, like Pell Grants, why why don't you support it for K through 12? A lot of the same people who support Pell Grants for higher ed and support pre-K programs for pre-K, they support allowing the families to choose where to take that money. But only when it comes to those in-between years of K through 12 education, do they get all up in arms about it? And it's all because there's a difference in power dynamics that teachers unions overwhelmingly donate their campaign contributions to Democrats. According to Open Secrets in 2022, for example, Randy Weingarten's teachers union, the AFT, has given 99.99% of their contributions politically to Democrats as opposed to Republicans or independents. And so it puts Democrats in elected office in a very sticky situation. And so it makes it very difficult for them to support school choice because they want to protect the teachers union status quo monopoly because it's politically profitable currently for them to do so. As I mentioned earlier, it might that might change because parents are finally making their voices heard as well. It's not just the teachers unions that are the special interest, it's the parents as well. But look, I think the stronger argument for school choice is not based on, oh, look, this peer-reviewed study in a, in a journal that some academic wrote shows that it's good for the parents. I I think the parents know what's best for the parents and they should have the choice. So it's more of a logic-based argument and a freedom-based argument. Yeah, we can back up those arguments with data, but it's more compelling, I think, to a third party watching the argument to see 
you got to be able to convince them in sound bites. And that's the reality. That's one of the benefits of being on Twitter, even though it's bad for your mental health in a lot of ways, it's beneficial in, in that it teaches you to refine your arguments in sound bites. And in the political atmosphere that we live in today, you need to be able to convince people in sound bites and pointing out analogies and showing logical inconsistencies of the other side has been very helpful in doing so. I mean, we went over the main arguments from the libertarian perspective against school choice, but the main arguments again from the Democrat perspective is that this will steal money from the public schools. Well, instead of putting myself in the explaining position, I've typically just responded by asking, well, why would giving families a choice defund the public schools? That typically gets me blocked because there's no good response to that question. They'll have to say, one, well, it's because people want to choose the private schools and they're not happy. Well, yeah, exactly. That's my point. Parents aren't happy with what they're getting in the current system. You are admitting that you understand families aren't happy and you're not very confident in the product that you're providing. That's an argument for school choice, not against it. And then two, I'll just respond by saying, well, the money doesn't belong to the government schools. We should fund students, not systems. And then they're in a weird predicament where they have to try to, if they want to argue with me, they have to try to argue why the money should belong to the buildings and not the students. So it puts them on defense. They're in the explaining position and they are losing. And that's why I'm, I'm blocked pretty often by the teachers unions. They don't have any good argument against us. Well, I've noticed that you don't seem to be their favorite person, but it seems like since I met you at Porkfest a couple of years ago, I guess we were on a panel on a completely unrelated topic. Police choice. <laughs> yes, police choice, right. Choice, I suppose. <laughs> There's some overlap, but, <laughs> but oh my goodness, your name and profile have absolutely exploded since then. Very, very quickly, did I see something about you being on Dr. Phil? Yep, the video should come out and it's actually turned into two episodes because we went over and a, I don't know if I can tell you what a little birdie told me about the teachers unions, but you might see on that episode that no teachers union official showed their face on that episode. So it's kind of interesting that that episode won't include the perspective of the teachers unions. I'll see if I can share more details on that in the near future, but those episodes should be coming out in a couple of weeks. Okay, excellent. And then, Corey, how do people follow you? What's the best way? You can follow me on Twitter. It's just at DeAngelis Corey. And if you want to help us in the fight for education freedom, we have the Education Freedom Pledge. It's just at educationfreedompledge.com. And you can help us out. We, you can stay updated on any bills that may be circulating in your state. Again, that's educationfreedompledge.com. All right, I'll have these links also on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 2211. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Corey. I think I kept you a little longer than I might have pledged to, but I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure speaking with you, Tom, and hopefully speak to you again soon. All right, folks, that's going to do it for another episode. Next episode, we have Jeff Deist on the corruption of language. I'll see you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.